If you're an entrepreneur, you know what it means to take personal and financial risks, create jobs that support your community, and devote most of your time to your business. But do you know how to plan for a successful exit from your business? Do you know who should be involved in creating your succession or transition plan and the steps along the way? Welcome to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. The podcast theme is inspired by critically acclaimed business author, Bo Burlingham, author of Finish Big, how great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top. In this podcast, you'll hear success stories of exit plans done right and pick up practical tips based on years of legacy business advisors' expertise and knowledge about the largest and most important financial transaction of your life. Now, on to the show. Good day, and welcome to the Finish Big Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Dorman, and today I am joined by a very special guest, a, who's become a, quite a good friend, and one of the most dynamic female business owners that I've ever met in the, certainly of all the business owners I've met, but certainly in the manufacturing space. I want to introduce you to Tanya DeSalvo. Uh, Tanya is a graduate of the Bowling Green State University. She was born and raised in suburban Cleveland and is the third generation owner and chief executive officer of Criterion Tool. Criterion Tool is a dynamic manufacturing company that pr produces precision machine components for what is known as the no-failure industries, medical devices, aerospace, and weapons firing. Very interesting. We'll talk about that. She's been promoted and reward career, rewarding careers in manufacturing to the next generation is her passion, giving back, and I can speak to that firsthand. She's a great leader. Uh, she enjoys in her spare time being on, on the water, in boats, jet skis, or kayaks with her two adult children. Truly one of her favorite pastimes. Tanya DeSalvo, CEO of Criterion Tool, welcome to Finish Big. Thanks, Mark. It sounds all impressive when you read it like that, but when you do the grind every day, it doesn't feel as good. So thank you. Nice to be here. Appreciate you having me. What do they say? Don't call, you know, just call me. Don't call me late for dinner. Just call me. Right. So so let's just dig right in. Uh, I want to touch on a couple, quite a few things today, but specifically, I mentioned in our intro that you went to Bowling Green State University. You and I both work in the Cleveland area. And women in manufacturing is really the niche of all niches. So uh, first of all, take us back and tell us exactly what Criterion Tool does. What, what do you say the no failure industry? Give us some specific examples for our listeners, please. So the no failure industries are, um, as we address it, is one, we're highly regulated, right? So the medical device components bring us through the FDA and the aerospace, the Department of Defense. So we're highly regulated and no one wants to think about the bone screw or the implant or something that may not be done correctly, perfectly to the process. And no one wants to be on any type of airplane or think about a weapon firing that's not going to go correctly. So the end user has a, has a big stake in the game of things just working. Things you don't even think about need to be done correctly to the print so that everything in it's involved with, because we are making just components, everything mm -hmm. involved with happens and works the way it's supposed to. So we're machining parts from the size of the screws that hold your eyeglasses together to about the size of a softball. Pretty technical. We don't get, to, it's not like, well, it's going to work anyway. There's some tight engineering specs that need to be met. And that's um, 
what the team does every day uh, to get the parts out the door. Yep. So, I mean, extremely low, low, low tolerances, correct? Correct. So we're taking your hair and we're dividing it by 10 and we're holding things that precisely. So, and, and give us, uh, even get maybe a little bit more granular in the medical device industry. You've showed me when I visited your shop, it could be things that uh, a screw or a hook that might uh, reattach an ACL or a reconstructed shoulder. Am, am I correct? So we'll do implants. It could be a facial implant. If you don't wear your seatbelt, crash your noggin into the front window and they have to put your face back together. Mm. Um, we've done cranial implants where if you have a concussion and they have to remove a piece of your noggin to relieve the pressure and then put your skull back together. If you tear your rotator cuff, we're doing some implantable grade peak. It's a plastic. It's a virgin plastic material to put your rotator cuff and your labrum back together. Uh, ACLs. It's amazing how many ACL repair surgeries get done because we make a component called a button that's used uh, for that, as long as, as well as some of the drills and instruments that go along uh, with those types of surgeries, even spinal surgery. People now, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, oh, I went in and had my L4, L5 and S1 fused together. Mm -hmm. And there's some screws that we make that are part of, of those processes. Wow. So pretty cool stuff. My favorite part, of my job is either being out on the shop floor and seeing what we're doing or sitting in front of a customer or potential customer's desk and learning about what problems they're having that we might be able to solve uh, by making parts and as I affectionately call it widgets for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've known you for geez, 15 years, I would imagine. And you just shared with us that these are very, and obviously very low tolerance, highly technical parts, but you're, you would, you would describe yourself as being, not a technical person. You've always said, Hey, I'm a salesperson. I like to go out there, grow business, generate more revenue. How do you balance that inside criterion? That's a great question. And I had to learn that I have to ask a lot of questions and I call them Tanya questions. Sometimes they seem really repetitive, but I want to be able to understand technically what you're telling me kind of at a level that I understand it so that I could turn around and repeat it to somebody else and they get it. So I have honed my question asking skills, mm -hmm. I feel, over the years, because most of the people that I associate with assume I know what they're talking about. Yeah, It's really hard to say, hold on, time out, I don't, and you're going to have to back up. And sometimes it's a little uncomfortable because I have to be pretty vulnerable and say, well, I conceptually get it. Talk to me like I'm a second grader, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, Yes. So it's unfortunate that sometimes I have to do that, but people are really across all industries, customers, clients, vendors, they want you to get what they do for a living and they, they're proud of it. So they don't necessarily, they're not offended by you asking a lot of questions, but sometimes it's just really hard to get what my guys are talking about or what the customers are talking about. And after mm -hmm. a while, if I feel like everybody's I've built the bridge and other people get it, mm -hmm. I kind of hang out in the background and wait for a next point to ask. Mm -hmm. The next silly question. There's never a silly, silly, stupid, ridiculous. that doesn't happen in my world with my team huh, gotcha. because I got to ask it because I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, paint a picture for our listeners. If, if I were to if you were to take us out onto the criterion floor, the manufacturing, are we looking at CNC equipment? Are we looking at uh, is it is it it's all stainless steel applications? But, yeah, paint that picture for us, if you will. This is my favorite visual. So I'm sure everyone has seen 
the picture of the iron workers in the 1950s sitting out on a steel girder. They look like a bunch of old Italian dudes eating their lunch and their feet are dangling, you know, hundreds oh, yeah. of feet above New York City. People have an envision of machine shops that they're dark, they're dirty. They just don't even know. Maybe they've seen something on TV in the old days. Today, we have painted floors, white walls. We're an air-conditioned environment. A lot of things happen on a computer screen. It's very CNC. It looks like a kid's video game. If your kid's playing video games, they could learn how to program and run a CNC machine. So we're in a beautiful environment, actually. And uh, mostly everything is contained. Machining is happening within an enclosed area. So the it's easy to keep things clean. So CNC stands for coordinate. Uh, numerical controls and everything now there's very few manual machines left in our building so chips are not flying all over it's happening in an enclosed environment so when you're working with and making parts that are the size of the screws that hold your eyeglasses together for some of the implants dental facial whatever the case may be out of a piece of spaghetti diameter material that's 12 feet long it's pretty precise Right. So that box, you open that box of spaghetti and hold a noodle in your hand. Sometimes that's the size of the bar stock we're using and it's 12 feet long. And when you're making a little tiny screw, you get a whole bunch out of a big 12 foot bar. Yeah. So it's pretty precise. Some people show up and I, you know, these big burly men with their big burly hands that are used to doing big outside work things. And then they come in here and they have to hold these little tiny screws, the finger dexterity and the ability <laughs> to hold some of these parts. It's a big deal. It's very yeah. different. There's lots of manufacturing in the world. We just happen to play in that smaller sandbox, but there's, you know, lots of big things made, but this is the environment that we've chosen to to operate in. Yeah. So in, in, in addition to the medical industry that you serve, it's also aerospace. It's also uh, weapons. Are these longer term contracts? Are they, are you awarded business? How, how does that process work? A combination of things. Sometimes we're just a problem solver for a customer where they just have a, a issue an individual purchase order to solve a problem. Our goal, obviously, is to earn the right to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we get to start at the beginning when we're part of the that. engineering process and um, we are involved and we get to talk about design for manufacturing and what makes sense, what's going to make sense long term. What can we actually make? I mean, square holes Ha ha ha. But engineers draw some crazy stuff. We can make a square hole, just not practical or cost effective. But if that's really what you need, it can be done. Somebody else is going to come along with a better mousetrap and make it less expensive. And that's one of the easy things. So we we'd like to be involved in the beginning part of the process. Mm -hmm. We then want always enjoy being awarded that business long term on a, some kind of contractual level. So we have the opportunity to work out all the kinks, beat the cost down be the best service provider we can be for our customers so that um, we're a vendor of choice when the next project comes up. Cause it's not always about what have you what are you doing for me now or lately, but what can we do for you in the future? So in order sure. to build those bridges and relationships, you know, you got to make good parts. You got to deliver them on time. What's interesting to me that I didn't foresee when I got involved in the, in the kind of the family business was, is that manufacturing is the ultimate team sport. Nothing happens here in a silo or a bubble. It requires effort from multiple people, from quoting it, engineering it, getting the tooling in, machining it, deburring it, packaging it, inspecting it, getting out the door. There's an entire crew that it takes to touch every single part to get it out the door. And I never really thought about that. I never really yeah. envisioned being kind of the coach of the team like that. I just wanted mm -hmm. to go 
So that was probably the biggest adjustment as I stepped into the leadership role was that. Yeah, learning, learning, and gaining that uh, that perspective. So I want to go back. You mentioned, uh, you know, your 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 initial foray into Criterion Tool. You went to Bowling Green State University, home of the Falcons. Yep. Uh, what did you do after graduating? Did you go after, from BGSU? Did you go right into the family business? And and what was the? Did your dad start the business? Your your grandfather start the business? What was the story there? So my grandfather started the business in 1953. So this is our 70th anniversary. And he started it in a garage and ultimately moved into a building uh, with a partner, as the story family lore goes. And then um, my dad and my uncle worked together for many years in the during the Vietnam era in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. My dad went to Bowling Green and my uncle was working in the shop together. And over time, they helped my grandpa build the business. My grandpa passed away, I think it was like mm, early 80s. And my dad and my uncle took over the business and ran it together for many years. And they just had different philosophies, kind of had the family divorce thing over time. So my uncle moved away and went up to Northern Michigan and my mom and dad took over Mm -hmm. uh, as partners. And at that time, excuse me, my mom was the president of the company and they were a family business, female owned. Back in those days, we're located here in Cleveland, Ohio, close to NASA. And there was, uh, you know, some work that could be done that was uh, 45208A was like the spec, the military spec at the time. And there was a little bit to be said for being a female owned business at that time. Uh, And they were in a 5,000 square foot building in Berea, uh, Ohio off of Thacker Street, which is now close to the Browns training facility. And so that's where the company was until 1995. Mm-hmm. And then we moved into the facility we're in in Brook Park. When I graduated from Bowling Green, I wanted to be as far away from my dad as I could. I was always the kid in trouble. I didn't ask for <laughs> permission. I begged for forgiveness. If there was a line, I found it and crossed it. I couldn't wait to go to school to get out of the house. I couldn't wait to go to school to make money. All I wanted to do was sell stuff and drive a sports car. That was like my goal. So I graduated from Bowling Green with a degree in sports management Mm -hmm. because I really struggled with the economics and calculus (laughs) for a business management degree. So truth truth be told, I really liked the sports management. I played tennis. So I, I thought that that would be a fun career. And I liked the pressure of the game of the sports management uh, deal, mm-hmm. knowing that mm-hmm. the tickets had to be sold for today's game by today, because nobody wants to buy them tomorrow. So I, that was always intriguing to me, but I, I jumped right into sales. I worked for a, a private club downtown and then I uh, got some great training um, through Dale Carnegie programs. I was a salesperson for them and I worked for Coca-Cola for a while. So I bounced around in some pretty technical sales jobs. I was in the automotive aftermarket. And um, I just enjoyed understanding my product really well, finding people that wanted to buy it and mm-hmm. figuring out how to tell them that we had the best thing that they needed. Yeah. So the sales aspect was pretty natural to me. When I came on board, my criteria and my dad had just moved in this building and needed some additional business. So I said, well, geez, I can sell. Yeah. So was there some type of mea culpa moment where you said, dad, uh, my rebel years are behind me. I want to come back and work no. and be part of the team. No, I wish, there, that was, I wish there was like some fairy tale moment like that. But to be honest with you, I was traveling quite a bit. And I think I was in Vegas for like two weeks for the SEMA show, which is a 
big car automotive show. And I just was so tired of being on the road. And that's before travel was awful. And so I, I actually mailed my dad my resume. I saw the ad in the Sun newspaper and I sent my dad my resume. I'm like, hey, if you're going to hire so a salesperson. Your, your, your dad was advertising for a uh, salesperson yep. for Criterion Tool. Yep. Unbeknownst, and I applied. Un, unbeknownst to you. Uh, yep. And I applied. So when I came to, this is a, this is a funny little tidbit, but when I came to talk to my dad about the job, I met with his advisor, his financial advisor. And just to give you like some scale on that, he was from Ernst and Ernst, right? So we've had Ernst and Young, we've had Ernst, Ernst and Winnie, Ernst and Young, now it's ENY. So he was a wily veteran. And he says, geez, I don't know why you'd want to get involved in the family business. Cause you know, multiple generations tend to fail. And there's like three scenarios. And the scenario number one is you don't get involved in the family business. Your folks pass away, they die and you get the money. Everyone's happy. Second scenario is you get involved in the family business. You hate your parents because you can't get along. You want to do it your way. He's going to be around forever. You have a falling out. You don't talk and, to them. Nobody's happy. Yep. They die and you get the money, but you lose a bunch of years. And the third scenario, which never happens, is you get involved in the family business. They leave you alone. You work your butt off. The business may or may not succeed because the the succession rate for a third generation is like less than 10%. Oh, yeah. And maybe they die and maybe there's some money, but you work your butt off in between. So why would you take option three? I said, because it sounds like fun. Yeah. And here we are. Because I'm a competitive <laughs> tennis player and I like I like to compete, right? So let me, uh, let's move along here. So your role initially, obviously your dad hired you. I can imagine the look on his face. It's Dennis is your father, correct? Yes. He yes. must have opened up that envelope with your resume and said, oh, for God's sake, right? Here we go. <laughs> so you you were hired in as a salesperson in an industry, uh, not only that you knew nothing about, but as a female in manufacturing, this was probably what, in the 90s, I suspect. Yep. And, and, and uh, so your, your role initially was in sales. What was the evolution of your role? The evolution was I went from, I left my, marketing sales and marketing job for a pub, many publications in the automotive aftermarket a company based out of Akron on a Friday. And I rolled in here on a Monday at 6 AM. Cause I worked in the shop for, I needed to get some experience on what we yeah. did. So I was a shop employee. And at that time we were working 60 hours a week, six, 10 hour days, 6 AM, <laughs> like 5 30 PM. So I go from lunching and picking up my dry cleaning and an occasional round of golf, driving to, your sports car <laughs> to bell to bell in a building. I had no idea what was going on, all kinds of crazy things. And nobody would talk to me because I was the boss's daughter of yeah. which I knew some of these guys. Cause I had done odds and ends jobs throughout high school and did mailings and things like that. So I had been around the shop, but not in the shop. So I know this is a podcast and you can't see, but I've always prided myself on having a really nice manicure and nice nails. So the first thing I was told to do is pull parts out of a tumbler, which is a big, gigantic vibratory thing with rocks in it. And as I pulled them all out, off came all my nail polish and take my jewelry off. Like I stopped. I mean, no one cares what you look like at six o'clock in the morning. So baseball right. hats and and uh, the all natural look were a thing. But I worked out in the shop for about a year. I did a lot of education with retired old uh, machinists on how to read blueprints, how to understand, again, let's go back to the math skills, um, decimals, tolerances, equivalents, fractions, the language that's used in a, in a shop, uh, the etiquette in a shop, what's safe, what's not safe. In the inspection department, there's a big piece of granite. Our inspection department's climate controlled. 
and you work on this granite because you can hone it and be sure it's perfectly smooth. So we get it calibrated every year. And I had a bag of Cheerios sitting off to the side. I was doing some paperwork and I had a Diet Coke because that's my poison in the morning. I don't drink coffee uh-huh. sitting on the granite and the pop can was sweating. And for everybody that's listening that knows anything about manufacturing, you don't ever want to put that on an unsealed surface. And the wily old veteran that was my teacher, his name was Walter Zupan, walked in when he used a cane and he called me off to the side and told me to get something off to the left. And he took his cane and he swiped it across that granite and knocked everything I was working on right off. And he says, don't you ever put a piece of pop can or food on that. That is an inspection device. Your grandpa's turning over in his grave. And I'm like, whoa nobody told me dude it's okay i'm okay i got the memo so i had a lot of those moments when i started that first year i think it was really helpful a little dose of humble pie right (laughs) it wasn't that i thought most people thought it was because i thought i was better than somebody else i just didn't i didn't know i learned a lot i i paid a lot of attention to what was going on so that was really helpful and you learn in a shop that a lot is what it sounds like what it looks like. I hear what you're telling me, but how come you're sweating if we're doing okay? Like, why are yeah. things we should, we should take, they take 10 minutes a piece. There should be six an hour. How come we only have three and we've been doing this for three hours? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. So those kind of things I quickly processed and it was, didn't make me a fan favorite. <laughs> mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, so moving on, I mean, was, was criterion in the precision tool manufacturer precision parts manufacturing at that time, or did the company while you were evolving, not only in your, uh, uh, not only in your comfort level and the level of experience in the manufacturing business, was the company also kind of evolving and changing along at the same time? It was the, the official legal name is uh, Criterion Tool and Die Incorporated. Mm-hmm. And my dad and my uncle did tool and die work. And then they augmented that with machining some parts because the, <clears throat> the process of machining tools and dies is very long. So from a cash flow standpoint, it was very complicated to be able to float everything. So they would machine parts and do kind of side jobs while they were doing their real job so that they would have some cash flow. So when my dad moved into this building, he really got away from the tool and die work, as I understand it, and got more into making component parts for different things. Precision, yes, but not to the level that we're doing it today. Mm -hmm. I think that that has definitely been an evolution um, that my dad and I worked on together. And then I really stepped up on after he was gone uh, from the business because it takes it's it's uh, difficult to. It's easy to be better than 50% of the crew. Sure, right? sure. And it's okay to be better than 75%. But if you want to go from 75% to the top 85 to 90%, that's where it really takes a lot of effort, process, dollars, and focus. And so we really applied that once I understood where the value add was, and it was there. So that's yeah. what I started focusing on. About 2010, I bought my dad out in 2010. I was going to ask, what 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 was the your your ascent to ownership at Criterion, and you know, obviously, uh, and we're with Tanya DeSalvo, CEO of Criterion Tool here today. Your ascent to ownership, and was that a fairly efficient process at the time, or was there any friction between you and your dad? It seems to me we we work with you. You've become a very good friend and one of my favorite clients. You have a tremendous, you can just feel a tremendous amount of love and respect for your father. Seems like that's a very, very good relationship uh, today. Was it that way when the baton was being passed? 
You know, it's funny that you say that. And it was it because my dad, I think, quit his dad for a nickel. Right. So we could go back and have this beautiful corporate minute book. And so he was making two dollars and 50 cents an hour in whatever year that was. And he wanted to be making two dollars and 75 cents. And my grandpa told me he was going to give him a nickel raise the two dollars and 55 cents an hour. My dad said, you know, go pound salt, I guess. And mm -hmm. he quit and moved along. So he never, I mean, we talked about that is he never wanted me to feel that way. And when I started, Mark, I'll be honest with you. I didn't see myself running the business. I don't know what, I didn't really see a path. I just thought it was cool doing the sales. And after I spent my year of apprenticeship training on the shop floor, and then it was kind of operationally, right? If you start making decisions, I don't know that I always had all the right information, but I wasn't afraid to pull the trigger. So by default, I started kind of taking on more responsibility. And we worked with a um, small business guy that we had met at a National Tooling and Machining Association event. And we went to a family business function. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at 92-year-old fathers with 65-year-old sons mm -hmm. and then 24-year-old grandsons. I know some of those people. Suit. And I looked at my dad and I said, if that's what that's going to be, I don't want to do that. Like, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want you around till you're 90, M me doing this at 70 under your tutelage. So we definitely could have to have some kind of plan. And if that's what you think is supposed to happen, then we have to recalibrate because I just remember like looking at that, all those generations, right? Super cool. But that's not what I saw myself doing because dad still comes in to open the mail and the son who's in his late sixties or sixties is still asking for permission to do things. And that just clearly wasn't my style going back to when I yeah, <laughs> to get yeah. out of the house in college. So the path was when my dad said, okay, so you think you want to do this? How long do you think it's going to take? And I said, I don't know, a year or two. And he goes, do you think you know enough to do this? And I said, well, I don't know. What do I, what else do I need to know? How hard could it be? How hard could it be? <laughs> I don't, I don't know that I even knew what I didn't even know that I needed to know. Sure, sure. So our path was actually seven years. We spent yeah. seven years kind of working on the business take take, take note listeners people. seven years seven years seven years of a path right so fortunately my dad was healthy my dad's 80 80 uh two, 81 this year 82 this year 81 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we one i think relinquishing control was a big deal for him mm -hmm. And I'm not sure he trusted. I mean, I was a little bit of a hothead. I grew up with a, it's my way or the highway. I grew up with a tough leader and my dad, I thought that's how you did things. So sometimes he who with the biggest stick won. That's how I thought the game was played. And I have since yeah. learned it's way better if you just ask for everybody's help than yeah. pretend to know all of it. But my dad didn't know a lot. I'm totally hamstrung by the fact that I can't run a machine. I can talk a little more technical now, but my comfort level with the complexity of the business today is different than my dad's was. He was a practitioner yeah. of the business, top to bottom, inside and out. And I am not, I'm a top, I'm a practitioner of the office in the front of the house. And I really have to rely on people on the back of the house um, to get things done. But we started with just talking about it, talking about mm -hmm. it with anybody that would listen, the banker, the attorney, yep. the whoever, the team. The lawyer, the business coach. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that I, that's really impressed me. And I've shared this with you um, when we speak is your, uh, you're quick to uh, self-deprecate, understand where your blind spots are, seek advice from people that can help you and and really cherish the talent that you have in the back of the house, as you refer to it. So let me just, as we kind of 
wind down the show here. Where does Criterion stand today? How many employees do you have? And what are some of your goals for the future? So today we're our, I'm going to say about 33 employees. Wow. Uh, we're on one shift. COVID knocked us back a couple of notches there. Uh, we're having a great year, record year. And um, super proud of everybody that's been involved. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things was I felt like I had to take on a lot of that burden myself. People want to know that their leader knows what they're doing. And I have a game plan, but I really had a tough time getting it out on paper and getting it uh, to the point that they understood the game plan. So they weren't playing whack-a-mole with their daily activities and monthly and quarterly goals and everything like that. So I feel like we're much better in that regard and we're pulling as a team. And my my ultimate goal somewhere down the road, and it could be 10 years from now, is to sell the business because my kids are not interested in it. Mm-hmm. So the most important thing to me right now in this moment is to build the best business we can build because we're in it every day. So yeah. we need to be doing the right things every day. I want everybody to come to work. One of our, our um, not core competencies, but one of our goals is uh, fun. You got to have fun when you're at work. All those precision industries and all the regulatory stuff that we deal with, you know, that's built into into our system. So I'd like to help my team grow and expand. I'd like to continue to build the business and at some day find the perfect owner for it, whether Mm -hmm. we're um, part of an acquisition process for a larger company or somebody that wants to be involved in manufacturing and does have the family structure to pass it on. I think that that's cool. But building um, success in within the organization and then promoting rewarding careers in manufacturing so that mom and dad know that their 15-year-old who may not be ready for college can come into the trade, get involved with an organization when they graduate from high school, not have to worry about college debt and make a really good living. That's important stuff. Yeah, definitely. Amen. Amen. So in closing, uh, Give us some advice for not only women in business, but women in manufacturing. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask that question. Um, That's a great question. And it's, I'm excited to say that there are a lot more women in manufacturing. I would agree. The first, the the first uh, association event I went to, I was asked to get coffee. So I feel like that that doesn't happen anymore. I'm sure that went over (laughs) like a lead balloon. You know, I feel like I'm excited to say that maybe when we talk about manufacturing, we can just talk about the best people in manufacturing, regardless whether it's male or female. But what's exciting to me is there's, there are a lot more women engineers. There's a lot more women, obviously um, in the front of the house and the back of the house and quality. And if that fires you up, whatever fires you up, you got to stick with it. And you just have to find a company that's going to be supportive of that. And I think today, what we have seen over the course of time is trying to, we're all fighting for talent. And so there's a lot of very talented women that may not have been in manufacturing that are very mm-hmm. capable of stepping in because short of running a machine, and some of them are very good at that, it's business, it's people, processes, and equipment. And it's a team. So if you can organize that, welcome on board. Yeah, yeah. You got a place in business. You got a place in any industry. Our guest today today has been Tanya DeSalvo. Tanya is the CEO of Criterion Tool and Die located in Cleveland, Ohio. Tanya, how would people get a hold of you or how would they find Criterion? Criterion's on the World Wide Web at www.criteriontool.com. Got a fantastic website. Um, If you Google Tanya DeSalvo, I've got all kinds of information I'm posting on social media all the time because I think making stuff is cool. 
So you can find us um, that way. And we also have LinkedIn profiles for both Criterion Tool and Tanya DeSalvo. Awesome. Awesome. Tanya, thank you so much for being on uh, Finish Big, the podcast. This is your host, Mark Dorman. Thank you for listening, folks. And uh, here's to Finishing Big. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed listening to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes are available. Learn more at LegacyBusinessAdvisors.com or call 330-350-5410. Please be aware the information in these podcasts represent the views and opinions of our guests and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Legacy Business Advisors. The content is for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax or legal advice. Always seek the advice of your legal or tax professional with any questions regarding your specific situation.